So I'm going to just offer a brief Dharma talk. This will be for our Monday night, too, so you're ahead of the curve now, Billy. So I just want to say a few words about uh, this ceremony today of Hanumatsuri. I'm going to start with a quote by Daisetsuzuki. Most of you, if you've read some of the stuff from the 60s, you would know him as D.T. Suzuki. But uh, he was definitely probably one of the most influential uh, Japanese Buddhist teachers of the 20th century. And one time he said, Be born again. Be awakened from the dream, rise from the death, O ye drunkards. So what does he mean? Well, when we do ceremonies like this, as we hold throughout the year, we do our liturgical cycle, most of these ceremonies are based in some way on the narrative or story of Shakyamuni that we call the historical Buddha. And we don't really get too caught up in these stories as being literally true. Now, there's no doubt that there was an historical Buddha. Scholars have long ago ascertained this, partially because lots of people talked about the Buddha besides uh, the followers of the Sangha. But we look at these stories of Shakyamuni, and we honor this one with his birth as a teaching parable not something to be taken literally, but rather to be understood as mythos. And a mythos, the meaning of mythos, is that mythos is something that joins us individually to an eternal narrative. So in a way, whatever we're looking at in the great mythos, or in this case, the narrative of Shakyamuni, we see our own life, our own journey. Because this path is not about copying anything or about following the same exact path as anyone else. For each of us, we all have our unique journey. We carry the same good tools with us, right? But we all have to walk on our own, but not alone. So myths are like dreams, and they're meant to be mostly understood as symbolic. So for example, before, uh, he was Shakyamuni after his awakening. He was known as Siddhartha. And Siddhartha's mother was Maya. Now in the story, as we just read in the liturgy there for a little bit, she conceives of him first in a dream. A glorious white elephant appears to her and offers her a lotus flower. Now, if you had a dream about a white elephant doing that, it might freak you out a little bit. But in her culture, her time, the elephant was seen as the most glorious animal in the animal kingdom. And a white elephant was seen as a, a bearer of sacred gifts. And so the elephant entered her side in the dream and she became pregnant with Siddhartha. And then somewhere out uh, on the plains of Nepal, she, uh, in the Lumbini Gardens, according to the story, uh, she gave birth to Siddhartha. And she did so from her side, the opposite side. The elephant went in one side, he came out the other. And it says in the story 
that this little infant stood up, <laughs> took a step in each of the four directions, and then made another three circles to represent the past, the present, and future as one. And so a total of seven steps, they say. And so therefore, what was being recognized was that Shakyamuni's birth, or Siddhartha in this case, was very special. It was unique. But you should know this too, that Maya, the word Maya, that means in Indian uh, culture, illusion. Illusion. So in a sense, what the name of the Buddha's mother represents is the idea that this world that we come into, that it is a bit illusory. That it is not so much the world that is an illusion, but how we see the world that becomes delusory. So that's what that represents. And it was said later that while Siddhartha's mother was Maya, and then later his aunt Prajapati, who took care of him, when he was Shakyamuni, after his enlightenment, he would proclaim that his mother was wisdom. And likewise, he had a dad, Suddhodana, who was a great ruler, supposedly. And whenever he became the Buddha, the enlightened one, he then began to talk about compassion as his father. And again, he wasn't ignoring his human side of things, but he was always seeing them in relationship to something more transcendent. And so then we come to this idea of what he says, right? He says, I alone am the world-honored one. Now, we could spend a whole day talking about this passage, but if you look at it and you break it down, I am one. So there's one part of this statement that he is making from his true self. I am one. And the other part of the statement is alone the world honored. Which he's talking about his ego self and the role that he would have in that. So that's what those words really mean. And the idea of a baby speaking, if, if that doesn't clue you in that you're not supposed to take this story literally, I don't know what will. But the idea of the baby speaking was that his true self was present from his birth. And as Trinity said so well, one of the things we learn about taking refuge in our true self is that nothing outside of us any longer can define who we are. And we don't have to justify who we are. This becomes an inherent grace that we take refuge in. And in the Buddhist world, when we observe the birth of the Buddha, it's actually our birthday too. So actually in lots of Northern Asia, there's a tradition where everybody says happy birthday to each other on this day, because we're recognizing that we're all Buddhists and we are all born this way. All we have to do is awaken to it and take refuge in it, and then we will live out of it. So one other thing I wanna add. So the Venerable Asita, was a, uh, an old monastic uh, priest who was the grandfather of Siddhartha. His grandfather was a fellow named Siha Sandhu, and, and he was uh, Siddhartha's grandfather. So Asita was his chapel. 
Siddhartha had been along a long time. And of course, when Suddhodana came along, Siddhartha's dad, Asita, was his teacher too. And so by the time that Siddhartha was born, he was an old man. And it is said that he had this vision that Siddhartha was going to be born. And by this time, he'd retired up into the woods in the mountains as a hermit. So he came down to honor the birth of Siddhartha. And it is said that, that this was his reply. In some sutras, they say this. Now thou dost dismiss thy servant, my Lord, according to thy word and peace. So this was his words. These were his words to Suddhodana, who was his Lord, his, his ruler. Because my eyes have seen liberation. And this is what he said upon seeing the baby, which has been prepared before the face of all peoples, a light unto the world in the glory of the Shakyas. And the Shakyas were the tribe or the clan that his people belonged to. And he knew he was going to die soon. So he had a little nephew who was about 12 years old. His name was Nalaka. So he ordained him at 13 so that his lineage, his family, would be able to hear the words of the adult Shakyamuni. Now there's something else that Asita did, and I'm gonna finish with this. Asita prophesies that this child will either become a great political leader or will become a great spiritual leader. And that in the end, the existential choice will be his. And so what, why, why is this, why do we see this uh, demarcation in, in one thing or the other? And part of that is something I think we've been experiencing a lot now. Let me just start from this point of view. So there's a great Buddhist scholar by the name of Wahula Rapula. And he was trying to sum up the meaning of this statement by Asita. And he said, to force oneself to believe and to accept a thing without non-dual understanding is politics and not spiritual. So in this statement, what he was trying to say, Rapula, who was considered one of the most venerated scholars of the Buddha's life and the sutras in the 20th century, was that when you looked at the sum of all these things, that's the difference. And he related it to the call of Asita. And in fact, the only thing you can find in the sutras, and I mean there are tens of thousands of them, the only references you can find to what we might call today politics is the Buddha saying, that that is unedifying talk. That we should not gossip about kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars. I guess he was saying we shouldn't be engaged in disinformation or fake news, we would say today, right? But the point is, is that it was a choice that he made. And I think today, some of you are familiar with the, the great psychologist Carl Jung, or maybe the great philosopher Nietzsche. And what both of them saw 
for the end of the 20th century. And, and Jung and Nietzsche both saw this before even the world wars, is they saw that as human beings moved away from spirituality as the center of their existence, that that void has to be filled by something else. And they all saw that as that spiritual center became less important, or in some cases had been co-opted by politics, that what would happen is that void, nature abhors one, would be filled. And so it would be filled with materialism. It would be filled with socioeconomic philosophies and politics. And it would all become about changing the world and forgetting to change the self. And so Shakyamuni's choice was based on this idea. It was based on the idea that his calling was to help human beings wake up to their true self. And I don't think we need to talk more about the, what I would call the, the collective neurosis and regression that we're often experiencing right now in our world. But a lot of this has to do with meaninglessness, because that's the other thing that comes up, right? A lot of nihilism. Nothing means anything. Well, when nothing means anything, again, it gets filled by something, because humans inherently were built like this. And if we don't fill it with the right things, we'll fill it with the false things, and the fruits will fall. So we can't worship the state. We can't worship science. We can't worship a political party. We can't worship any human thing that tells us that the focus has to be to change the world first and not change the self. And this was the, the Buddhist concept. And that's why it's also, I think, so important to have some concept of belonging to a narrative, a mythos. Something that allows your individual life to feel part of something larger than just your life. And again, how you define that is personal. But, it, but it's central. And finally, I'll leave you with the words, the words of the poet Jane Hirschfield. Are you guys familiar with her? She's a great, great poet. And she said this of this story. The story of the Buddha's life is an archetypical journey. But remember this most of all. It is a means to an end, not the end. And what I take from her in that is that it is a means to us understanding ourselves. We are not to be caught up in a cult of personality around Shakyamuni, or even necessarily any kind of negativity associated with a spiritual or religious community but rather we are to see ourselves as that inherently. So not a means to it, not, not the end, but a means to the end. So I will f greet you finally, as all good Buddhists do this Hanamatsuri. Happy birthday, Buddhists. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you, thank you. <laughs>